This could Biden. be our first president on Business Untitled. That's right. This will be our first president. <laughs> the Democratic and Republican parties have rotten to the core, and it's time for competition. And I'm trying to bring that case from the inside because that is the only way to win the presidency with integrity and competency and decency, and it's got to be told. Welcome to Business Untitled. Um, today, we have a great guest. I'm going to talk about him in a minute. I'm here with my Sultan of Smooth co-host, Mel Carter. Yeah, and, Sultan of Smooth. And, and the very famous Mike Novogratz. The very okay, famous and, Mike Novogratz. And we have, uh, we have Dean Phillips, Congressman Dean Phillips with us today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, Dean is an entrepreneur in his own right. He's going to talk about that a little bit later. He's a congressman from Minnesota, uh, three terms, and he's currently running for president of the United States against President Biden. This could Biden. be our first president on Business Untitled. That's right. This will be that's our first president. Yes. And you may ask why politics is coming into Business Untitled, but um, Dean's an entrepreneur in his own right, and, and politics is a business as well. And I think we want to like get behind the curtain of, of uh, the business of politics as well because it's something that Dean – is finding very challenging as he uh, takes on President Biden in the Democratic nomination. Uh, I want to give two facts to frame this, which is one that Biden is currently losing in all seven swing states. Right. We've heard that recently. Seventy seven percent of Americans at this point in time think that he's too old to be president. And just one other reference point, which is that in 20 in 2007, at this very moment when B Obama Hillary Clinton were running against each other. She had a 45 to 25 percent lead at this moment with trying to control the Democratic machinery at that point in time. And we know how that ended. And by the way, Joe Biden was in that race at three percent at that point in time. But um, I think it's interesting context and we're excited to get into it. So without further ado, Dean, welcome. Dave, great to be with you guys. Mel, Mike. Yeah, welcome. Great to have you. It's an honor. You're the guy I want to be my president. Uh, well, I need a VP, Mel. <laughs> oh, he, he was talking there last night. You know, and we're, and we're gonna have I've been thinking a lot every day. Every day. <laughs> every day. Every day. We, we often start off uh, just asking people about how they were raised. Yeah. You know, I mean, Mel likes to say, you know, he, he was raised in the hood. I was middle class and Dave was raised rich. Uh, <laughs> you've got a funny, you've got a funny backstory. Well, not funny. You've got a different yeah. backstory. So yeah. why don't you give us a little of that? Yeah. You know, uh, my life started differently than most know. I, I lost my dad in Vietnam. Uh, Captain Artie Peffer. I grew up very poor in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, my grandfather, Victor, died when he was just a, a boy. My grandma, Ruth, worked at a department store to try to make ends meet. Uh, and my dad couldn't afford college, so he earned an ROTC scholarship, uh, went to the University of Minnesota Law School, graduated cum laude, and was sent to Vietnam just um, a few months before I was born in 1968, and was killed uh, on July 25th, uh, 1969, just three or four days after the moon landing. Wow. And I got to actually, on a side note, I went back to Vietnam for the first time uh, in my life, just mm -hmm. March of this year, and went to the very site where he was killed. Wow. Uh, you know, oh, wow. Literally took dirt home from where it happened, and it was a, it was a moment, you can imagine, uh, a beautiful one. But I remember thinking how all the soldiers then must have been looking up at that moon yeah. and seeing America you know, mm -hmm. at its very, very best. You know, it's hard for our generation to kind of have a moment like that, maybe the 1980 Olympic hockey team beating yeah. the Soviets, but you know, a moment where you just feel like, uh, extraordinary. And I'm imagining he did. And then they would look down at their boots on the ground in Vietnam and see America at its worst. Anyway, I, uh, I was six months old when he was killed. And my mom was 24 and widowed. And we lived with my great grandparents uh, for the first three years of my life. And then I got lucky. You know, I got lucky. I was adopted by an amazing dad. My mom remarried, Eddie Phillips, brought me into a family of privilege and blessings and business, philanthropy, a lot of advice. My Grandma was Dear Abby. My aunt was Ann Landers. So if you guys need any wow. lovelorn you know, help here. Hold on. Dear Abby and Ann Landers. Yes. That's yeah. Amazing. So you got all the advice you need. Yeah. Much more than that. <laughs> and, and then some. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you a great story. My, my grandma, Abby, anointed me a Democrat in 1980 at a dinner in downtown Minneapolis. We had seen my, high, my school, my elementary school, had John Anderson, the congressman from yep. Illinois, ran for president in 1980 Ooh. as an independent. Uh, that evening, we had dinner as a family, sat next to my grandma. She asked me about my day. I said, hey, the next president came to speak to us. 
And she said, honey, if he's speaking to sixth graders, he's probably not going to be the next president. <laughs> <laughs> like two you know, months before the election. And uh, she asked if I was a Democrat or Republican. I'm like, Grandma, I don't even know what those are. <laughs> And she said, you're a Democrat. So that's how it all started. Anyhow, wow, like a, a wonderful family. I had a great grandfather, Jay Phillips, who taught me a couple things. He said, Dean, money is like manure. You stack it up, it stinks. And if you spread, spread it, it out, around, it grows. It, it's fertilizer. <laughs> exactly. And the other thing he shared with me about business is said it's a means to an end. Business is a means to an end. It's not about aggregating as much as humanly possible. It is about sharing as much as possible. So that was kind of the family ethos. And um, after a, a couple of years at a startup business after college, I entered our family distilling business. On a, a great story, we went to Poland trying to sell our schnapps from Minnesota mm -hmm. to the Poles. Uh, instead, we discovered the most beautiful packaging and spirits we'd ever seen in the world, Chopin and Belvedere Vodka. Uh, we changed our game plan right there, imported it uh, first as the distributor for, uh, for the world and then acquired the rights from the Polish government for Belvedere Vodka and created uh, the luxury vodka category. Mm -hmm. I'm going to weave this into a little story because whenever we, we see... drink a lot of vodka. Good. <laughs> it, 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 my, your doctor, I hope, said... I was a Smirnoff guy, but I'm going to switch to Belvedere. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'm going to weave this into a little bit of an arc. Anytime we see a duopoly, we know it needs disruption. And Absolute and Stoli needed disruption in 1993. We brought Belvedere. Sold that to LVMH, uh, then built Talenti Gelato into the, one of the most successful ice cream brands in the country. We saw Ben & Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs. Same thing, duopoly, they fighting, fighting their way to the bottom. We rise above it. And um, I'm watching the 26, then open a couple coffee shops with my family, thought it'd be fun to have a little folly. And we're watching the 2016 election, uh, my family, and I was dumbfounded. I really was dumbfounded by the direction our country took that night. And I woke up the next morning to the sound of my daughter, 16 years old, crying in her bedroom. Uh, she had just overcome Hodgkin's lymphoma. And she's a gay woman. I did not know that at the time. But I could sense in her eyes and her face her fear, which I'd never seen in my kids. And gosh knows, a lot of parents wake up seeing their kids in fear, but not me. And it jarred me. And I sat at the breakfast table that morning, and I promised my daughters I would do something. And I talked to friends. I said, I think I'm going to run for Congress. And they all said, you're out of your mind. You're going to lose. You're going to torpedo your career. Mm -hmm. So I did it. And um, I flipped a district that had been Republican for 60 years. Wow. 1958 was the last wow. time a Democrat won. My uncle's district. Oh, that's right, yeah. It's, it's, it's Republican. And, uh, <laughs> and I beat a guy who'd won by 14 points that night. I beat him by wow. 12. And I did it the old-fashioned way, with invitation, not confrontation. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the ethos of where I'm at now. Um, I can tell you more about getting into Congress, but that's, that's my life story. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, about, it's about both uh, some tragedy, but also gratitude. And I think that's the attitude the country needs a little bit more of right now. Mm -hmm. Well, well said. Question. How did, uh, how I, for, I don't drink. Uh, maybe now and then I might be forced to have a drink. But I remember hearing about Belvedere and vodka, Belvedere vodka, when I was maybe 15, 16 years old. It was a huge announcement that, Damon Dash and Jay-Z yep. either bought it or became partners with it, but they would not go anywhere without this bottle. How yep. did that even come into play? Oh, I got a great story. Back now. then. In fact, I just just had a great meeting with Jay Brown, who's Jay-Z's you know, yeah. partner and friend, yeah, and, and he validated this great story. So here it is. I'm, we introduced Belvedere, and it did well. It wasn't, didn't start on fire. It was a $25 bottle of vodka at a time when all the others were 15. It was pretty unusual. Yeah. But our premise was Smirnoff this. Smirnoff was eight. Yeah, Smirnoff, <laughs> oh, as, as Mike knows well. But here, here was the idea. You know, and Jay-Z was kind of a part of this. He was just kind of – but the idea was that you, know, you can't buy – Robert De Niro or Jay-Z's house. You can't have their watch. I, I actually bought Robert De Niro's house. No, you probably did. <laughs> yeah, other than Mike Novogratz, anybody. But the notion was, you know. I don't know how happy Robert is about that. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> You know, you can't buy celebrities' houses, their watches, their cars, their planes. But, boy, you can drink the same bottle of vodka because it's only 25 bucks mm -hmm. that Jay-Z's drinking or Robert De Niro. So that was the idea. It did well. Not, not great. And I'm getting ready one morning. I think it was 1996 or so. And... I, I have MTV on, and I, my eye goes to the screen, and I see a Jay-Z video where he's got a fridge open filled with Belvedere vodka. He's, he's pouring bottles on dancers, <laughs> and I just, I was startled. I called my dad. You know, this is before cell phones and, you know, internet. I called my dad. I'm like, Dad, put on MTV. And he did, of course, he didn't know what channel it was. So <laughs> I said, hey, don't, when we get to the office, we'll put it on the TV, and we'll just, you know, they'll repeat it. And sure enough, we had about 20 people at our office in those days. 
and we sat around the TV. That video came on a little bit later that morning, and we just, our, our jaws were on the ground. We knew at that moment that everything was about to change, and sure enough, orders from around the country tripled, wow. quadrupled. It's the best free advertising you ever got. So, exactly. So Jay-Z, I mean, there's a lot to tell about how we built Belvedere, but he really propelled it. And then he reached out to my father because he wanted to understand. He recognized he had moved the needle in a big way, Yeah, was interested in the vodka business. So they had dinner in New York, uh, a memorable dinner. My dad gave him counsel advice. Jay-Z ended up introducing a brand called Armadale. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. Scottish vodka. It didn't do that well. But it was a beautiful experience because it was in, in the analog era. It was an example of how celebrity could build a brand. Mm-hmm. And we actually launched the brand in 1994 by sending 200 very beautiful boxes to 200 celebrities, titans of industry, actors, celebrities. And the notion was if we could just get 200 influencers around the country to spread the word, we could build a brand. And we, did a, we, we took the uh, Tiffany spot in the Wall Street Journal, uh, a one, one little tiny ad, didn't have a picture of the bottle. In this box that was sent to these 200 people, there's a photo of our distiller, Bodan Zelensky, and it said, watch the Wall Street Journal on February 6th. And the people that looked at that paper that day saw a picture of Bogdan, and he says, Belvedere. Bogdan wants to know how you like it. It didn't say it was a vodka, didn't say what it was, but two, only 200 people knew what that ad meant that day. Mm. And that's what started the brand's success. And Jay-Z wow. was the one that propelled it. Shout out to Jay-Z. Mel's named after Jay-Z. <laughs> oh, Carter. I love it. <laughs> so wow. I, yeah, there's an interesting that? insight, right? We talk about this a lot that black culture in so many ways is propelling all culture and for so many years didn't get paid for it, right? And here's a perfect example of them not originally having the consciousness that we're helping build this brand for these white guys in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm sure have a lot of gratitude, but where's the money? Yeah. And now you're seeing black culture really shift to say, I mean, Kanye got himself in trouble with this because he yeah. didn't say it in the most graceful way. But his message was probably the right message. It's like, hey, if we're creating this culture, how do we own it? Yeah. And so that's Ownership. just an interesting. I mean, that, yeah, great. Ex- that's exact. And thankfully, there is a transitioning happening. Yeah. You know, it's it's not just. It's not just, um, it's not being taken advantage of. It's actually participating in ownership. And that's what we got. I mean, that's kind of the metaphor for my whole campaign for president. How do we create a massive ownership culture? You know, why do employees not own stakes of the enterprises that they help build? Why don't communities participate in success of business? I mean, if we're going to succeed as a country, we have to start spreading that out and fertilizing is my is my belief and that means everybody i'm impressed your father even knew who jay-z was like well, that, he, a minnesota think, guy I, that would know hip-hop let me tell you guys i think i may have had a little bit to do with that yeah 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 <laughs> so have you uh, have you ever just said fuck it and reached out to joe biden and said why don't you just be my vp <laughs> well, <laughs> no. well you know i did uh i i actually i First of all, Joe Biden's been to my home. I had a fundraiser for him some years ago. Did he I, remember he was at your home? I don't know if he. I, I think that's a, <laughs> well. When he's on your podcast, you can ask him the question. You know, I um, I flown on Air Force One with him twice. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, I, and I called him twice since once before I declared my candidacy and once uh, the evening before because mm. I thought it was appropriate to you know out of courtesy to let him know. And sadly, he wouldn't take the call. Mm. So um, I've not had the chance to ask him to to be my VP. That's why I'm waiting on you, Mel. Joe Biden, you need to be his VP. We'll accept you again. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Joe Biden needs to gracefully, uh, you know, sit in the big chair and and, and play with his grandkids. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the business of politics and and it's compare it to the, just, you know, your entrepreneurial experience or just flat out, like, how does it work? I know that you've been disappointed. It's been hard to get on some ballots because of the way they protect. And it's a blood sport. It's, it's, fixed a bit and i don't think most people understand how it works dirty it is it's a duopoly guys it's it's a political industrial complex that surrounds and protects and encapsulates a very dangerous duopoly Mm -hmm. uh if if you haven't read george washington's farewell address read it he warned us 230 years ago exactly about what we're facing right now wow he he warned us about factions remember when he was president we did not have parties Mm -hmm. You know, you stood for election. Goodness, we've come a long way. Thank goodness. It's not like all was well then, but no political parties. And he recognized that factions would probably lead to the end of the great experiment in democracy. He said regionalism, provincialism, that means small states versus big states, rural versus urban, would lead to the demise of this nation. And he said foreign influence would lead to the demise. These three things, I think, 
uh, have intersected right now, mm -hmm. and I would encourage you to read that. But this industry is awful. Uh, I used to be an enabler of it. I was a supporter. I gave to candidates. I gave to the institution, if you will, thinking that it had our best interests in mind. But mm -hmm. my goodness, you guys, uh, the only interest they have is preservation of uh, prestige, position, and power. Mm -hmm. And what I have seen from the inside, uh, let me start with this, the money. My colleagues in Congress, members of Congress, spend 10,000 hours per week raising money collectively, 10,000 wow. hours. When I, get to, when I get to Washington in 2019, I think Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy are going to do what you do when you have a new team. Sit down, get to know each other, break some bread, do a ropes course, you know, build a little bit of trust, mm -hmm. uh, and get to know each other. And boy, it was just the opposite. They put us on separate buses, going to separate events. Systemic separation literally started on day one. And I recognize they didn't want us to get to know each other. They didn't want to educate us and provide us information. And they wanted all of our time consumed by fundraising because by so doing, we would have no ability to challenge the power structure. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the physical, social, organizational design of Congress is so woefully broken and so easily fixable with anybody who has management experience. But they don't want that because mm -hmm. that is a challenge to the very structures that exist. So I discover this, and um, I decide, well, before I ran for Congress, I don't, I don't take PAC money of any kind. That means corporate or, or union. Mm -hmm. I don't take any lobbyist money. I don't take money from members of Congress, nor do I give it to them. Mm -hmm. And I don't have what they call leadership PACs, which are slush funds, basically, for uh, politicians to use at their own mm -hmm. discretion. I'm the only one out of 535, because this is just a sick money game. Yep. And how do you, when you're raising money 10,000 hours per week, who are you raising it from? Of course. People who got it, mm -hmm. which Us. isn't, yeah. And by the way, yeah, people in this room, that's fine. But when you're spending your time exclusively mm -hmm. with people of great means, it's not just the money and the influence and their interests, it's the time and it's the social elements. So when you spend all your time with people of means, you spend none with people of more modest means, they become angry. Mm -hmm. That's why we have Trumpism. Trump just went to people and said, I understand why you're angry and you're furious. You're not heard. You don't matter. They don't care. Mm -hmm. They spend $2 trillion a year more than they take in, and you're not getting a dime of that in your communities. Factories are closing, right? You can't mm -hmm. get health care. Your housing's too expensive. Your kids are uh, dying of overdoses. You know, that's the problem, you guys, and that's the system that breeds this. Both sides, Democrats and re Republicans, are responsible. And now we're moving it up to this. What, what, what I've discovered is the barriers to entry are designed to prevent competition in a country that is predicated on competition delivering better value and better outcomes. In the case of politics, it should be delivering better candidates. Why doesn't it work? Because the parties do not want you participating in primaries. Have you ever seen a get-out-the-vote effort in primaries? No, they just want you to get out and vote in the general election after they've coronated the candidate that they like that protects their position, their prestige, their power. So... What's happening is they raise the cost of entry in every state. New York, the state in which we are in right now, is one of the most difficult anti-democratic states in the entire United States of America. One wow. of the deepest blue states. Registering to vote in this state is obnoxiously difficult and wrong. Getting on the ballot in this state is obnoxiously difficult and wrong. It's, it takes 15,000 signatures, all designed to preclude people from participating. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it is so antithetical to the practice of democracy. So my two biggest line items in my budget right now are personal security and ballot access. Mm -hmm. And what does that say about democracy? Right. And then lastly this, the Democratic Party in Florida decided 10 days ago that um, Joe Biden won the primary without one vote being cast. A hundred and some people on their Polling. executive committee said, uh, we don't need a primary. Joe Biden will be the nominee and therefore we will hand 250 delegates to Joe Biden. North Carolina the next week said, you know what? Despite the fact that I qualified by simply being a presidential candidate who is in the national news, that's their only predicate, they decided they don't need a primary either, that Joe Biden has won, and they will hand their delegates to him. And these are, this is happening right in front of our faces. Mm -hmm. And the president has not said a word about it. So I'm concerned that part of what you're seeing right now is this duopoly working to actually prevent competition, prevent debate, and prevent voters from even opining and that is the truth and i've got to shine light on it and i intend to do it every single day but how could they do that doesn't that like take away everything that we stand for damn right Mel. and and shouldn't that be illegal to why do you think they're why do you think they're treating me the way they are why do you think they're sending the arrows the punches you know the the attacks because yeah. they do they do not want this exposed 
This is exactly what they work so hard to protect. But then they they project this image of we are here to protect democracy, and they get Democrats get mad at Republicans for suppressing the vote. Mm-hmm. My goodness, I've never seen such, such obnoxious suppression of votes in my entire life as Democrats are doing right now. And by the way, I'm not asking for anything special. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy told the same story. Now he he ran, and he's got that voice and. Uh, Mm-hmm. And he finally was like, enough. Now he's switching to the independent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it but is it's hard to change from the outside. I'm yeah. trying to change. That's why, that's that's why that's I'm a little dangerous to them is because I'm on the inside. I was a House Democratic leader. I've been in Congress three terms. I'm going to tell the truth from the inside, and that's dangerous to them, and it should be because it's got to change. And that's yeah. why I'm grateful to anybody listening and wanting to help back. How quick? So I'm sure, you know, you're you're an affable guy. Uh, you've well, got good you. stories. You drink. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 in my, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great clip. I drink in very, very moderate. We'll be watching you. Yeah, this is water just over the house. So you had to make friends in Congress, oh, uh, yeah. you know, from, you know, there's a, we, we know a lot of the guys. There's some lovely guys down there. Yeah. How quick have they stopped taking your call or are they still engaged but kind of like, mm-hmm. dude, what are you doing? Look, Congress is, there are friendships, but it's transactional. I mean, it's just the truth. These are not friendships that are predicated on anything but advantage is mm-hmm. the truth. And I see it, we all see it every day. When it when a friendship gets in the way of someone's aspirations, yeah, it dissolves very quickly in Washington. That's why they say it, it's true. When you go to Washington, you want a friend, you get a dog. Mm-hmm. I so got you, two. So you, you didn't get a lot of Christmas invites so, this well, year. Here, so here's the, but here's the great thing. I have wonderful friends, and yes, I was affable. My my colleagues elected me to join the leadership table with Hakeem Jeffries in this last Congress. I mean, it, it, that probably says everything you need to know. But I was worried when I went back to Washington for votes yesterday. I was wondering about how I'd be received. But my goodness, it was high fives and hugs and That's and great greetings. Oh. You know, you'll, with that said, are people angry? Darn right, they're angry because I'm getting out of line and I'm raising my voice and I'm not being a sheep. Mm-hmm. And when half the when half the Democratic voters and when 75% of the country want candidates who are different than the ones right now who are leading, and only one member of the 250 House and Senate Democratic Caucus is willing to say it out loud, right. doesn't that just say it all? So my yeah. friends are angry at me because I would have the audacity it's to interesting. tell my, the truth. A lot of my friends and dressers are mad at me because uh, sure. their line is, would you rather have Trump? And I was like, I don't want Trump, and I think we need to move on with from Biden. I think he's too old to be president. And I want neither of them. Yeah. And so I'm going to try my best to make sure that that happens. And it's interesting how angry people get. Oh, yeah. uh, because Who gets angry? I, that, I, I, feel like you, I feel like you come into rooms, though, and you can't find somebody that really feels like Joe Biden should be. I mean, 77 percent of people not in the de- too old. If you're in the Democratic money circles yeah. or the Democratic you know, political infrastructure circles. They do the calculus and they're so scared of Trump. They think he's this existential threat to the universe, let alone our country. And they'll like, we'll take anything. And I'm like, well, the polls say Trump's going to lose. When? Trump's going to win. Trump's going to lose. And they're so scared to change. There's like, there's a paralysis. Think about it. If you guys were investors in MySpace, right? Yeah. And you had gone all in. And you'd been helping. You were there at the very yeah. beginning, and you were close to their leadership team. And then you hear this—you hear a little bit of uh, whispering about this new thing coming out, like called Facebook, right? Well, you, what would you do? You—you—you you, you would try to mobilize and encapsulate your investment in MySpace, right? That's mm-hmm. what's happening in politics. People are investors. They're close to the power. They want to maintain that. And part of the, our my objective is to simply point out the facts, which they don't want to see right now, which is Joe Biden is going to lose to yes. Donald Trump. And it is a risk to democracy to uh, to yeah. perpetuate and propagate this delusion. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah, I'm sure this information and, and, is out there, but uh, for our viewers who are like me, who's like just enough of an air to understand, how does Donald Trump be accused, uh, not convicted, but face felony charges, yeah. right? Indicted. Maybe convicted. And still be able to run for president. Where where does that, when does that happen? That no, you can't run for president because you're you're a felon or going to be a felon. Well, I thought that would automatically disqualify you. I look at, 
well, first of all, and I hope we can migrate the conversation to what the country really needs. But yeah. I'll tell you, to answer the yeah. question is, you know, um, you know, I, I think that people support him more when he is charged with more because he endures it. You know, we live in this. I, let me talk about two things to answer your question, but most importantly, the why. It's astounding that a man who is facing these 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 um, indictments, who's had his his family's philanthropy shut down in the state of New York because it was dishonest who couldn't lose his entire business because of fraud, and who inspired an insurrection against his own country, and he's leading in the polls against the current president, who's a decent man? What does that say? It says that we better wake the heck up soon because most of this country is really angry. And they're so angry that they would rather support a guy who could be going to prison for doing bad things because he's the only one that is listening to them. That's right. That's what's amazing. He could be in prison and maybe win this election. I mean it, you guys. Yeah. But that's the part I'm just not understanding. There's not a rule that disqualifies. Yeah, there's, there's a deeper constitutional rule. question because, yeah, because the founding fathers never, never anticipated, anticipated yep. a maniac yeah. like Trump becoming president. And I'll tell you, the other thing yeah. they didn't anticipate is my Republican colleagues, when he inspired that insurrection, to not remove him from office, which would have precluded him from running again. The fact that he was not, impe was not convicted in that impeachment, the second one, is one of the most egregious yeah. affronts to democracy this country has ever had. He should have been removed. This is why Liz Cheney should be celebrated. She gave up her entire career in the yeah. spirit of principle. Ten Republicans had the courage to vote to impeach him. Yeah. Nine of them did not come back the next Congress because, wow. right. yeah, you know why. So that's that's the yeah, real Pat, Pat issue. Cheney, who's the senator from uh, uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. Yeah. who's an awesome guy yep. uh, and, you know, would have been a, a great, you know, you know, keeper in the Senate, yeah. he he came, you know, out for impeachment. That was it. Didn't even run. Yeah. Because, like, you know, that's the only people that could come out is ones that knew, ones that would knowingly torpedo their careers. Did, yeah. But here's the reason the others didn't. And this goes back to your fundamental question, Dave. The system yep. only rewards silence. Complicity. And complicity. Yeah. Period. And if you have the audacity to speak the truth, shine lights on the facts, Right actually do your job and represent the Constitution, you are likely to lose your job, not yeah. gain any prestige or yeah. power. And that is the perverse incentives in which the system operates. Yeah. And that is why, just as Belvedere disrupted vodka, Talenti ice cream, we do need disruption in our political system. Right. We do. This is not the year to do it, because I think that would actually help Donald Trump. But my goodness, the Democratic and Republican parties have rotten to the core, and it's time for competition. Yeah. And I'm trying to bring that case from the inside, because that is the only way to win the presidency with integrity and competency and decency, and it's got to be told. If, if you think about what Trump stands for, putting him aside as a person, right, there's a nihilism in there. There's a, we, I don't even care, burn it down, because people are so disgusted with the business of politics, yeah. the suppression that Dean is experiencing right now, that it's like, fuck it, I'll take anything. That's what's really happening. And so that's how they can look past that because mm -hmm. at least somebody's hearing them, you know, again, not to get into the the merits or not of, of, of Trump as a person. It's just this frustration. Yeah. And by the way, Trump dismantled and threw the Republican Party oh, out, in the, out in the gutter as well. He beat Cruz. He beat Bush. He took Paul Ryan out, yeah. right? There's just a list of people. He's a weak he man, Dave. It. He's a weak man. Who's a he's a, he's the high school Classic bully, you guys. Bully. He's yeah. a weak man who portrays strength, but in times of fear, and anger, and disenfranchisement, and you know, look, we got AI coming down the pipeline. We have yeah. forests on fire. Yeah. We have storms. We have famine. We have wars. A it's man a very seems, complicated. It's time. complicated, it but is. the guy seems to people that he somehow coasts through all these challenges, right? Yeah. And and I think that is the fundamental reason he's beating Joe Biden. Joe Biden's a good man, but he doesn't seem strong. You can't fix that. You can't repackage that. Trump seems to people to be the one that can somehow navigate us through this, despite despite the lack of character yeah. and his uh, narcissism. Do, do you think it's something, though, that people have given up on the system so much? Because it's not just Trump, right? Obama beat Hillary. Yeah. Sanders probably, you know, had a shot at beating Hillary, sure. but for the machine of, you know, of the democratic politics. And so there's something, if you look at this pattern of of disruption, where insiders, right, and Biden is considered a consummate insider. He's been 50 in years, 50 years. he's run 50. a bunch of times. So I think there's something really deep there, too, and it's why this message, why supporting Dean is so important, because there's optimism in that message, like, hey, we can change this. It's not just like, let's give up on everything. Right. We should and, be attracting the best yeah. and bright. 
I think, first of all, I think having I thought, a little public sector experience is important. I mean, mm -hmm. like anything, you know, you don't, you're a better entrepreneur when you've maybe started a business and learned a few lessons. Same thing in public, you know, public life. You should, I think, have some experience, which I do. But we should be a magnet for the best and brightest to run for office, not just in for the presidency, but for Congress, for, you know, for the Senate, for, for governorships. Instead, all we're attracting is kind of the public sector class. And there's some good people. Yeah. But not the not the innovative people, mm -hmm. not the ideators, not the innovators, and that's what I'm trying to change. It's not about me. It's about the system has got to start welcoming and creating a mechanism by which that stage is open to a new generation two, of candidates. Two nights ago, Mel and I were at a uh, a gala uh, where Jeff Yass, who's a mm -hmm. Philadelphia uh, trading gambling extraordinaire, he has the Yass Prize for innovation in education. All right. Um, big founder of charter schools, and they had hit, taken 100 to, to 50 to 20, and there were 10, 10 groups that were going to get a half a million bucks, and one guy won the million-dollar prize. And each went up on stage, and they gave a story of each one. And I was thinking, and I actually went to the lady on my left who was a Wall Street Journal reporter. I was like, look at these people up there. They were so inspiring, so awesome. All 10, I was like, and we've got Biden and Trump. I was like, how in God's name can America produce people like those 10? I mean, it was a tear-jerking moment. These guys were so inspiring. It's actually a tear-jerking moment because <laughs> no, I started to cry. Because <laughs> I got inspired. I'm a, I, I weep every once in a while. I got the whole while. thing on video, by the way. <laughs> I, <wanna see laughs> show I think you should run that on the pod. Here. Yeah, so him yeah. cried twice in his entire life. What was the other time? Uh, a ran, uh, it was sad, but it was a random guy in the newspaper died. Hmm. And he just started to cry. Uh, <laughs> like, Show me your tears or a window to your soul. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you just hit the nail on the head. That's the problem. Because these are two private institutions that are pretending that they're public, that they're pretending that they are really supporting democracy, mm -hmm. that are pretending they're really supporting competition, and that are pretending that they have everybody's best interests in mind. It's so clear, so, so clear. One part of this duopoly, which has driven Dave and me crazy, Mayor Dave sometimes, both of us, is that the teachers union has such a monopoly on the Democratic Party, and, but broadly public sector unions. Public sector unions. But really the teachers union at its core. And, you know, last year, 2022 and 2023, uh, ACT scores were the lowest in 31 years. Uh, the COVID generation, as we're going to call them, are so far behind. Yeah. We had over 50% of students in America last year that failed a, failed a test, yeah. failed a class. Yeah. Half of American kids got an F. That averaged about 25% for the previous two decades. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, a lot of that can get targeted to the teachers' unions not allowing kids to come back in the classroom because of their own fear, because of mismanagement of the COVID. Because it didn't happen with charter schools and it didn't happen with private schools. Uh, my kids didn't lose a beat. Uh, By the way, that, that data existed. Um, in the very beginning of COVID, I read a report from the Spanish flu epidemic in 19, what, 18? And they tracked a cohort of students who had were not able to go to school. They tracked their entire earnings over their lifetime and their and their careers. And the evidence was right there that when kids at that age and stage of their lives uh, don't go to school, it literally has such a long tail that it impacts them their entire. We could have lives. a lost generation yeah. of those kids, yeah. and it's not their fault. Yeah. And so, how as a Democrat do you deal with first school choice mm -hmm. and be the unions in general? Yeah. Well, so, so starting with unionization, I mean, do I believe in the right to organize? Yes. And collectively bargain? Yes. I think that is actually what made America quite a remarkable country and economy for so many. Uh, and I favor thoughtfully led unions uh, with good character and good principle to do better for their people. Uh, I, you know, t I, speak, I, I love teachers. Uh, frankly, I, I think we should start by rewarding teachers the way they should be. I think uh, all the evidence in the world, and you guys know this, who, who, who study this, uh, that the best indicators for success are the best teachers, and that means we should recruit them, we should identify them at younger ages. Uh, right now we pay about 81% of our per capita GDP in compensation to teachers. The best systems in the world pay about 130 to 140% of their per capita GDP. They put teachers on a pedestal. It is one of the most prestigious jobs in their countries. So I think, A, we should start with that. I love teachers. I think the union can, can and should be playing a much more important role in reimagining education. Uh, 
and I also think that they should be resourced. For, here's the biggest problem. There's something called IDEA. It's the, it's the full funding of IDEA, which is the special needs funding for schools. Mm. The deficiency in funding for public schools, and it's not just about money, but to resource them so they can take care of the kids who do not have advocates to take them to charter schools or to private schools. I, you know, I don't want to demean teachers' unions because I think they have to be part of the solution. They exist. They have a right to exist. Uh, they also have to be welcomed and inspired to participate in reimagination because our system is a 19th century system trying to teach 21st century kids. I don't know about you guys. I remember my field trips not sitting in the classroom. I remember maybe two teachers that were really remarkable. They should all be remarkable. And if we want to really reimagine, we got to get kids out of the classrooms, especially uh, those in the toughest circumstances. Because if you don't see, if you don't get into a forest and into the woods and into an ad agency and into a, a hedge fund, into a factory, into a hospital and see what's possible, a, a music studio, you know, if you don't see what's possible, how in the world could you have a dream? And if you don't have someone believing in you, yeah. you know, that's all it takes. So I, I just want to kind of, I want to just advocate for teachers, but also for the necessary uh, long overdue need to reimagine education because we are failing kids, to your point, Mike, and it's enough. Yeah. I, I would respectfully disagree on public service unions because I don't think the profit motivation – I 100 percent agree with you on anything to do with like steel unions, autos. Okay. With oh, that you're public. Said, I understand. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, I but if I could just say one yeah, more yeah. thing on this, and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'm sorry because yeah. – I, I, collective, to, to collectively bargain, I think, is important. But, I, but the problem to me is not the union. It's the management of the federal agencies. They're led by people who are, don't have the competencies and the experience, in, in my estimation, and without the reward systems mm -hmm. to both attract, to recruit, maintain, and then promote the very best and brightest. Yeah. If you look at the – these are hardworking people who do not make a lot of money typically, and they're doing it you know, for, generally for good reason. Yeah. But if we don't attract better managers, this goes back to the yeah. earlier conversation about the best and brightest, we should want them populating these agencies. We should want the leaders of these agencies to be the best managers in the country. That, I think, is the bigger problem. Yeah. And then the union won't – I don't think the union's the problem. I think it's the management and the culture of these institutions that are so woefully broken. Yeah. I'll make one more point, which goes back to the business of politics, which is – if you could sever the union, public service union money from coming into the system, mm -hmm. I would agree with you, right? So, again, in terms of political contributions, because if you could sever, yeah, exactly, which is which is really I'm admirable because there's nobody that doesn't do that. What, it's this money in the system yeah. that's creating this problem. Right after uh, Mayor Adams got elected, Mel and I had we were, we were all at dinner with him at Zero Bond, and yeah. uh, I made this comment that I said, "Dude, you can pivot to the center." You know, New York City's public education is woefully yeah. inadequate. And I had all the stats of, you know, roughly half of our kids aren't at grade level. Yeah. Uh, that's shameful. an F. Shameful. And I was like, you gotta, you gotta take on the union. And his aide grabbed his heart and started, you know, convulsing. He was like, oh, stop, stop, shut, shut that guy up. I mean, he was so animated. He was like, you can't win without the teachers union. And it was like, almost like it was such a truism. Yeah. Um, but we have so, to work. This notion yeah. of taking on, it, it's never going to work. You know, we have yeah. to work with. I, that's my only proposition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got Look, it. At, there are some really well-led enterprises and there are some really well-led unions and there's some really poorly led enterprises and some really poorly led unions. Yeah. I think if people can sit at the table, like, that's the culture I want to create. You yeah. know, teachers want to help kids. Yeah. And that's the truth. We all want to. So but we don't create space and place to have these tough conversations about what that takes. And by the way, I do believe in school choice as long as public schools are well-resourced, yeah. right? Because what saddens me, and I see it all the time, you guys, it's the kids who have the advocates that pull them out of a public school and put them into a charter or a private school. They're the lucky ones, yeah. which leaves increasingly a lot of public schools populated with the kids who don't have the advocates. Yeah. Yeah. It's the toughest circumstance. Well, I have this, the, yeah. this, this so. math I do. That in New York City, this is going to sound very inflated for people that don't live in the city, but, you know, the city spends roughly $35,000 a kid. That's wow. up from 22000 only like six years ago because wow. we have less kids, more money, and, of course, you never fire anybody. Uh, so 35000 a kid, which seems like a lot. But if you assume the public school system is not as efficient as a private one would be, let's say 80% of that gets to the kid. That's still less than half of what it costs to send a kid to private school, which we think is run efficiently. And so kids like my kids or Dave's kids 
who have the huge advantage of our dinner table and the, the, the knowledge they learn from parents and parents' friends who probably could have less spent on them than the kid from, from your neighborhood uh, uh, are having double spent. Yeah. And so in some ways we have the whole thing backwards. Backwards. Yeah. We're spending, we're, we're spending, know, we're spending our resources. It's not just the money with that, though, but because I remember people, my daughter, right? I remember trying to get her into, I can't remember what school it was, but like three, four of these like prestigious private schools in Manhattan, and I had the money to do it, and they, I just didn't live in the right zip code or something. So it's, it's not just the money. You can't even get your kid into some of these private schools, right? So what, what, what's, what's the problem with that? Because now that I'm thinking back about it, you could be from Flatbush. You could have enough money to pay $40,000 a year for your kid to go to a good private school. And they're like, hold up. Nope. Uh, unless you know Mike Novogratz or Dave Barry, who may recommend you, you still can't get in these fucking schools. So wh why is that? Yeah, listen, all the schools have a lot more people applying than spots. Usually, if you're black and your your kid is pretty competent and you can pay, they're happy to have you because uh, they're all maybe one, two, they're, they're trying, three, to, they're not all trying, to, they're all trying to increase their their balance, and they have a lot of scholarship kids. Yeah. Uh, but listen, there's just not nearly enough good education for the amount of good kids. Yeah, yeah. This, this and is, it can't this, be solved. This whole with conversation to me, this is the triangulation. There, we have great educators. We've got great ideators. We have great facilities. We have great leaders. But but the more we kind of separate and segregate, yeah. by the way, segregation is happening all over again. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. this is the segregation now. It's just between, it used to be in the schools themselves. Now it's kind of, you know, public versus private. And guys, I just think th this is a great example of those conversations that we got to start having where yeah. how do we use the best minds in the country to reimagine yeah. the entire system? Yeah. There's by a radical the way, idea that you'd have yeah. no private schools. Yeah. Well, that would be, and, I mean, that's how that's how the country was established. Yeah. Everybody, everybody, every yeah. class, every everybody went to a public school. And by the way, you know, in the nineteenth, in the in the 20th century, early 20th century, most kids ended at elementary school. Between 1910 and 1940, the number of um, elementary school kids that went to high school went from 18 percent to 70 percent. Mm -hmm. You know, so as I so as I contemplate that's the future, insane. I mean, to me, this is pretty. It's 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 hard to do, but it's a simple solution. You got to raise the foundation. Right. That's. That's healthcare, it's housing, and it's education. Yeah. And why we don't start every student in this country at pre-K, every kid, so that mm -hmm. they can get ready for school and right. get them prepared, not to mention that's a form of childcare, which allows parents to go out and work, and it and allows their little kids to start being nurtured in comfortable, nurturing settings with good food and education, right? We can reimagine this. And by the way, I think the teachers' union would like to have that conversation. The key is that we make sure we put kids first, right, and not power and not yeah. politics and you're right you know you're right the money from a lot of big packs and a lot of big lobbying firms does drive the outcome of elections because people want to maintain the status quo and i'm a disruptor if you yes. know nothing else about me yep. i'm a disruptor and and i think that the, the Teach, you know, I don't want to pick. Let's take it off of teachers because yeah. there's military industrial complex, oh. pharma industrial complex, agriculture industrial. You know, it's health just it's the, health, just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's the it. same thing over and over again. It's really yeah. just that protect the status perversion quo. of the system. Pharma spends three hundred yeah. million dollars a year protecting let, the status quo. Let's yeah. pivot to the election for a second. Yeah. Take us a path to <laughs> to, to victory. Well, let, me, let me start with this most simple, <laughs> obvious disruption possible, and this is what is so sad about America right now. Vote in primaries. If you wanted to, if if everybody listening and watching wants to disrupt the system, vote in the primary. Mm -hmm. We still have that chance, you guys. And I'm a, I'm amazed, amazed at how few 12, 13 percent of Americans go and vote in the primary, and then the 87, 88 percent that didn't complain about the candidates they have. You know what? You yeah. want to be part of the change. You want to be a disruptor. Stop complaining and go vote in the primary. Right. Now, states like New York, they kind of make it tough because if you're not registered months yeah. in advance, yeah. right? My state of Minnesota, you just go right to the polls on the day of any election and you can register to vote. Mm -hmm. You know, so, it's, so that's how. So to answer your question, that's how we disrupt right. New Hampshire. You know, I'm going to surprise people, and uh, if anybody wants to support this effort and help me disrupt this sickening system, got to win New Hampshire. Help me win New Hampshire. Uh, there are ways to do it. You can support my campaign. Uh, you can spread the word. Uh, there are other ways to help because if we do so, um, Gene McCarthy in 1968, another unknown Minnesota senator, mm -hmm. went to New Hampshire, got 42 percent of the vote, 
President Johnson dropped out of the race just a few weeks later. Bobby Kennedy entered, and had he not been assassinated, would have been, would have been the next president. It takes a disruptor, mm-hmm. and that's how we start. So there are two ways. Vote in the primaries. Don't let them keep you down. Make sure you look online and see when they are and go register now and be part of the change and help me in New Hampshire. Everything will change thereafter. Mm-hmm. Everything will change. So this is a question I always ask, right? And uh, in your case, mm-hmm. it, it won't be a day. It'll be four years, hopefully eight, right? And I always say, what would you do as president one day? For one day? <laughs> but that's not the case with you. Hopefully it's four years. Mm-hmm. What do you do immediately to help the black community, my community, which doesn't have these opportunities that you had as a kid growing up. Dave had, Mike had, and now myself, I have a ton of opportunities. But in Flatbush and in Atlanta, and the the most successful person you see most of the time, and yet in reach with is a drug deal on the corner or the scam on the corner, who you don't look at as like, a bad guy because they're the one who's kind of helping the community, yeah. helping the, the 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 you know, you almost look at them like this is the most successful person I know. And that needs to change. But factually, that's what's happening. And that drug dealer became that drug dealer because that was probably the only opportunity he had. Same. And that's happening all around. How do you how do you help the black community? One, gain other opportunities, right? Because not everyone's mm-hmm. going to figure out how to meet a Mike or a Dave or Dean or, you know, how do, how do you change that? So I think it starts with a country finally collectively acknowledging what slavery did to a community that deserves investment, deserves. Uh, anybody who does not understand what that system of slavery did to an entire people and how that still has and legs still doing. and still doing it in many ways, you know, through through some obvious mechanisms and some not. And if if you haven't watched the documentary 13, I encourage people to watch it because the 13th Amendment and that documentary changed my mind in a lot of ways because it enlightened me. Here's the answer to the question. Uh, I dwell in the possible, and I think it's investment. Uh, We talked about education. We should make a massive all-hands-on-deck investment in 21st century education and ensure, even constitutionally ensure, that every child in America, no matter their color, by the way, Mel, is this is I think this is the way to achieve this. There's a big part of America that says, "Why not me?" Right? Yeah. I'm living in the middle of uh, of Kansas, and mm-hmm. I and I and I and I don't have a job, and I you know, and I I want something for my kids too. Let's. I would argue, as much as I absolutely 100% agree that we um, have to acknowledge uh, the shame of slavery and what it has done to this country, and why uh, the black community in America deserves specific investment. The only way to achieve it is to ensure that that investment covers every American that is suffering. So I would say education, healthcare, housing, massive all-hands-on-deck investment to make sure every single kid in this country, through economic resources and human resources, has a mentor, has someone looking after them, and is in a place, physical and otherwise, that can provide nurture and care and education. That is how I think we can achieve this, because if it is only for a specific community, Mel, I'm just telling them the truth from what I see inside of Congress, that's when the other side of the aisle says, whoa, 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 you know? No, this isn't a racial issue, you know? So let's make it an American issue, that anybody that's been disenfranchised, anybody that has been unheard, anybody that hasn't received investment for their children and their community, we should start considering that and doing it collectively. Because I think the country has got to start by acknowledging it. And I would like to hear your ideas, Mel, because I think too many times we impose what we think is right. What do you think we should do? I agree with you, but it's like this, right? Uh, If Mike injures his leg right now and he's bleeding, we're going to look after Mike first. We're going to send him to the hospital first. And I do think the inner city and black community is the ones that's bleeding the most right now. I agree. So you got to... You got to help the person who's bleeding before helping anyone else and uh, uh, the way I look at it, right? And then that person, now when you you have a level playing field, you can start to help everyone else. But we have a community that's bleeding right now that needs immediate relief or to be sent to the emergency room. So I I do... I want to help all of America, but I think 
in order to help all of America, you have to start with the inner city kids that's bleeding, that doesn't know there's any way out. Yeah, but I think all I was saying, Mel, is that, that just... Identity I think politics that, isn't working I, that's, anymore. I think what yeah. I'm saying is that, that's you said it better than me. I, I, what I'm saying is absolutely. Yeah. I think you know. T look, I'm a marketing person at the end of the day, and a salesperson. When, what I've recognized is the way Democrats have tried to pursue their our legislative priorities has been poorly packaged, poorly messaged, and poorly communicated. If we would do the same things, argue for health care, housing, education, support for all, all, wouldn't we be more successful? Because that's the invitation to rural white Americans who also, I'm not saying it's right. Yeah, no, no, I'm no, just no, saying no. that hey. there are people that could be in a different podcast somewhere else right now saying, you know what? Uh, we have, a, we, we have a, um, an epidemic of overdoses right here, right? We have despair. You know, all our kids are dying of, of suicide or, or drug overdoses. They have, no, they have no jobs in our rural community, right? So why is Washington only talking about X, right? So yeah. all I'm saying is I think two things can be true at once. We should have an all-hands-on-deck approach to everybody who is suffering. By the way, some are suffering because of uh, injustice over centuries, uh, the black community. Some are suffering because of the ignorance of rural America and, and, and policies that literally exported jobs overseas, right? We have, a, we have diseases of despair amongst young and old. They des this notion of not just one community but all that are suffering is, to me, my entire premise, my entire approach, and that's the only way to get it done because the only way we can pass things in Congress is to invite, in this case, the other side to join us. Yeah. And that means we have to merge, and I think we're saying the same thing. And it's long overdue. We're spending $2 trillion a year more than we generate in revenue. A trillion, we just passed an $860 billion Pentagon budget. By the way, for a Pentagon that has not passed an audit, and we have kids sleeping in streets. We have kids going to school hungry. We have kids abusing drugs who have no chance in life. You know, we, we are so backwards in our priorities is what I'm saying. We have the resources. It's about making the choice. And I cannot wait to work with you and anybody that's willing to to change the allocation of resources. Because if we don't do it now, my gosh, you guys, either Donald Trump will ruin the country or the economic and wealth disparities in this country will because the bottom 50% of America only has 2.5% of all of its wealth. Yeah. The top 1% has 32%. We can't survive as a country if that continues. Right. What, what are some steps that, like little steps that we can be taking, people can be taking to help reshape this business of politics, this yeah. money game, right? I know supporting you and disruption is one, but... What are some of the, like, even like the consolidation, I'm, I'm yeah. thinking of it's a slightly separate point, but the yeah. consolidation of executive power. It yeah. seems like nowadays presidents are just doing everything by like order, order, yeah. order, right? There's no process anymore. It's so, well, so talk my about that a little yeah, bit. My proposition is to be, first of all, our founders envisioned, the ex they called it the executive branch because it is an executive office. Mm -hmm. The job is to execute the laws of the land. It is not to be the chief policymaker. It is to work with the Congress with consent. And of course, the judicial branch you know, opines on the legality of it. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. Uh, I would be the first president probably in modern history that would execute the job as it's written to make sure the federal government operates well. And that would mean a comprehensive reassessment of how things work right now because so much doesn't work. Because I'm the number two most bipartisan member of the entire Congress, by the way, not just Congress, all 50 governors, that's 585 people, number mm -hmm. two. Who be you? Susie Lee from Nevada. I just told her yesterday. I was <laughs> so disappointed. Susie. Shout Susie out Lee. Susie. <laughs> another, another a great rep from uh, from Nevada. I know how. I I love my Republican colleagues. Gave a bunch of them hugs yesterday because mm -hmm. they know too. They, by the way, that's untold right now. They're having the same conversations privately about Trump. They don't like him. They're oh, yeah. appalled mm -hmm, by him. They know mm -hmm. he's dangerous, but mm -hmm. they can't get in front of the cameras and say the same thing. Mm -hmm. My Democratic colleagues doing the same thing. My point is this. In four years, yes, I can absolutely demonstrate to the country there is a different way to do this, which means every voice will be in the White House. It means we will identify objectives and then work together on the takeoff so that we can be there on the landing as it relates to policy. We can do it. My colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle, they're not racist, right? Those who support Trump, yeah, there's some bad people. Yeah, there's some bad people all over the place. But the fact of the matter is most Trump supporters are not racist, misogynist, horrible people. They're mm -hmm. just the opposite. Mm -hmm. And they're sick and tired of being called that simply because they're tired of this nonsense, right? I want to invite them. I want to get people to the table who are great innovators. 
I want to bring, we should be, by the way, we should also decentralize our government. Why is everything concentrated in Washington? Why don't we move the federal agencies all around the country? You know, if, if Detroit maintained all their design centers in the state of Michigan, do you think they would even be competing now around the world? No, they had to move their design centers to California where the talent was. Mm -hmm. We should be doing the same thing with the federal government. Let's move agencies to where the talent is and attract the best and brightest and start working together because the problems facing my Republican colleagues, constituents are exactly, exactly the same ones facing mine. So that's the nonsense. And instead of two teams that are so focused every day on strategies to beat the other the next time, I will change that because I'm not here for the long term. My career in Congress is done. Three terms, I'm done. I'm not aspiring to anything else other than being the executive to demonstrate how we can do it better. Mm -hmm. Hooah! <laughs> <laughs> What's your thoughts on how we deal with China and Russia? So I think that our, first of all, let, let me talk about our, our, our military right now. Um, we just spent, well, we just approved $860 billion a year. I'm just, I'm gonna give a lay of the land, yeah. right? Uh, and what we have right now is, I think, 700 and some installations and bases around the world. I think we have uh, soldiers and, and facilities in 80 countries, right? The expanse wow. of the American empire is pretty extraordinary. I think the most profound in, in, in human history. What we don't understand as Americans is what that conveys to people in countries that are not necessarily our friends. So just imagine, what if China had uh, missile batteries in Toronto and they had a sub-base in Cuba, uh, and they had uh, frigates or, or aircraft carriers maybe off the coast of Los Angeles and Manhattan. Just what, let's say, do you think that our government would say no problem? <laughs> you know, be, be, be our guests. Right. No. Look what happened when the Russians, the Soviets, had the audacity to have missiles in Cuba. We almost had, world, we almost had the end of the world with one initiative back in the early 60s. So my point is this. We have to look ourselves in the mirror and understand that if we in indeed wish to be a country that pursues peace, we have to start recognizing how provocative we are by simply acting in the national defense. So what does that mean? Vladimir Putin is a dangerous man, and he has proven time and time again he will take an inch, wait for the reaction, and then take his mile. Joe Biden was vice president for eight years with Barack Obama. When Putin entered Crimea and took it, he waited for a response. Mm -hmm. First of all, we knew he was probably going to do it. We didn't respond when he did it, and we did nothing afterwards. So what did he do? Waited until he was ready, and now he's trying to take all of Ukraine. The Chinese, they're watching us and how we behave, too, with, with uh, Taiwan, of course. It's the same notion. Um, I, so to answer your question directly, Mel, Russia's complicated. We should be planning for a post-Putin Russia. They've had a brain drain. They will be a failed nation with nuclear weapons. And we have to be prepared to start... Uh, using our foreign policy, diplomatic and otherwise, to ensure that uh, that country does not become a really rogue state after his demise, which, you know, who knows when that might come. China, I truly believe, is not an imperialist nation. They do not have their eyes on somehow uh, kinetically defeating the United States. Uh, I think there's an arms race because they see what we're doing. Uh, we have outsourced a lot of our economy to them. I think our policies over 30, 40 years have been terribly... Um, uh, disenfranchising to Americans, mm -hmm. uh, and they are a very strong competitor, and we should be competing. But I don't think we should be making China into the enemy that then the military-industrial complex yeah. comes to Congress and says we have to defend ourselves against, yeah, which is how the game exactly works. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. Now, Russia's a little different story. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. But Chi the Chinese, they we need each other. We should be solving the world's problems China together. China is a competitor that started cheating a little too much. Sure. And, and we, we let should, them get away with it. And we should have pushed back harder. Yeah. And it should have been a very tough confrontation, but of, of colleagues. Yeah, that's, I'll tell and you a quick story. And now we demonize them. It's a story not many people know. The, the last Chinese ambassador to the United States uh, extended hundreds of invitations to uh, members of Congress, the administration, and nobody accepted. And after his couple of years or so, he's called back to Beijing. He's appointed their foreign minister. And his image of America was unhospitable, unfriendly, unkind, unwilling. His whole experience here was just everything was, um, was you know, everyone gave him the Heisman. And now he was, he was sacked recently because he did some bad things when he was in the States. But my point was, is this. The new ambassador comes to the United States, and my friend tells me this ambassador, no one had accepted his invitation. So I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put together a dinner. 
I think if you don't have a human relationship, even with your adversaries, mm -hmm. you are failing in your constitutional duty. So I, I, call, I had my chief of staff call the embassy, uh, asked if the new ambassador would like to do a dinner. They were, they were skeptical. Why would a member of Congress actually want to have dinner with the Chinese ambassador? We're not used to that. <laughs> just to get to know you, no policy. It's not going to be just to, just to build a relationship. I asked 28 members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans, to join this dinner. Two accepted. Mm. Most of them said, look, first of all, if you walk into the Chinese embassy, ca someone's capturing you on camera, and they'll turn that into a political ad in my next election. Mm -hmm. I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll get crushed. Two people had the courage to join me that night. And we had a wonderful dinner. Um, would I say that we solved the world's problems? No, but we developed a human relationship. Who knows what the ambassador might be doing two, four, eight years from now? Probably back in Beijing, probably a senior leader mm -hmm. uh, of their party. And if we don't start investing in relationships, by the way, Donald Trump, I actually think what he did was smart with Kim Jong-un. Now, do I despise the man and what he does to his people? And is he a dictator and a horrible tyrant? Yeah. But when it relates to people who have nuclear weapons, if you do not have a relationship with them, they are much more apt to act irrationally and destroy you if they don't have a human relationship. Right. So I would argue that it's just basic principles of humanity, management, and practicality Mm -hmm. And we right now are simply not acknowledging, I think, what our policies have created around the world. And if we lose our standing as the principled America, which I think yeah. in some cases we are, uh, we're in trouble. So yeah. that's my two cents. I think we should be an avid competitor. We should be well prepared, have the strongest national defense. But we should be reaching out in the spirit of peace because if we don't do that now, it's going to be harder and harder to achieve. Right. Qu question, one last question on, on uh, with your entrepreneurial mind. Right. Looking at the business of politics, your ascent, your to the presidency. We mentioned New Hampshire. What's your strategy when yep. you lay it out? What is your strategy to win? If, and this is like when Mel wants to run for president, he can <laughs> he can map this out. So here's, here's my yeah, here's, yeah. here's my pitch. So, well, start with the obvious, which is the system is not designed for a competitor, for an insurgent. It is mm -hmm. designed for a coronation. Mm -hmm. And that's why they try to lay out the carpets and 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 you know, put up the. Uh, the banners for uh, the coronated, and that's Joe Biden. So this is different. This is the, my invitation is to an insurgency, to an entrepreneurial enterprise, to an upstart, to a disruptor. Mm -hmm. And that means to get on the radar screen because the platforming is tough. Yeah, MSNBC has not extended one invitation to me to uh, come on one of their shows, even though I'm the ranking member of the Middle East Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs when we have a war in Israel. Squawk Box asked me to come on next week to talk about our fundraiser. Interesting. There you go. Squawk Box. So I, I say that because platforming, introducing myself, uh, is complicated right now because mm -hmm. the system is trying to prevent that. So uh, we intend to surprise in New Hampshire and in Michigan, two of the early state primaries, also South Carolina. Uh, Joe Biden disenfranchised the state of New Hampshire because he came in fifth place there, got 8% of the vote in 2020, and he basically said the delegates won't be seated. They mm -hmm. moved it to South Carolina. Right. He's not on the ballot in New Hampshire. I am. He's also now trying to do a write-in campaign because he recognized that he could be in big trouble. So mm -hmm. that's the strategy. Surprise in Michigan and South Carolina. So you Carolina. should win New Hampshire. Well, I, I shouldn't say I should. I, I intend to be surprising. But then here, there are three paths, you guys. You got Marion Williamson. And, well, there are 20 of us on the ballot in New Hampshire, gotcha. but, yeah, um, but Joe Biden's not one of them. So surprise in one of the early states to generate attention and demonstrate that we can succeed. Second is this. The president is 81 years old. Anything can happen between now and the convention late next year he, when he was, you know, he'll be almost 82. If something happens right now, I, I'm the second most prominent Democrat in the race and you cannot get on any more state ballots. Mm -hmm. The third is this. I just go until May or June of next year. When head-to-head -head uh, head -head polls will come out, I believe that they will show me beating Donald Trump, probably handily, and I believe they will continue to show President Biden and Kamala Harris, uh, Vice President Harris, losing to Donald Trump, at which point Democrats have a very clear choice. Mm -hmm. Do we go with the person who is almost certain to lose, or do we go with the person who is clearly, based on the evidence, likely to win? Therein lies perhaps the most important question the Democratic Party will have faced in the last century. And those are the three possible outcomes. Question. So Republicans have their convention first, and let's assume they nominate Donald Trump. Sure. Now it's Democratic convention. Biden has gotten the most votes in the primaries because uh, he's already stacked the deck. Let's just assume yeah. the shot of him stepping down, brokered convention. Like that's I, I talked to a really senior Republican last week, and that's his big fear. He was like, oh. Yeah. 
we know the the only person that Trump can beat is Biden. Exactly. Uh, and you know, will Biden see that and step down? Has, is that is that the it's, and, it's and guys, not to rush. I know Dean has to go pretty soon, so maybe we'll make this the All last right. yeah. question, and then we'll do our answer gold. Yep. Uh, yeah. To answer that question very quickly, yeah. they, anything is possible, and that is my entire contention. I will have gone through this primary, been assessed, been challenged, hope, probably data showing me head-to-head with Trump. If I'm the one that is most likely to be Trump, I would imagine uh, the Democratic uh, delegates would choose me. If someone else, by the way, is better positioned to beat him, my goodness, I'd get behind that person in a heartbeat at that point. But we won't know that until we go through this process, and uh, that's where things should go. And uh, at the end of the day, as long as it's transparent and as long as Democrats want to beat Donald Trump, if that is the objective, uh, we should succeed. And at the end of the day, folks, no matter who wins, we have a crisis of affordability in this country. We also have a crisis of peace, and we also have a crisis of artificial intelligence coming down the pipeline very shortly. And a current administration and certainly a Trump administration ill-prepared – disinterested in recognizing both the great blessings and the great challenges and curses of artificial intelligence. If we don't start planning for that now, it's going to manage us instead of us managing it, period. I'm, so, on, I'm on team blessings, but that's a different It question. is, and, and cost savings and great outcomes, but it's going to have you know economic disenfranchisement. Any so, interest in having uh, Mike Novogratz be a VP? <laughs> Mel, I'm hanging out for Skeletons. you, man. No, Mel. I, you know what? <laughs> he knows how to answer. So we, we always ask... Every uh, a guest yeah. to, to wrap it up with just this one ounce of gold that you've learned from your life, from your father, from your stepfather, from, uh, and we give you an ounce of gold. Which, which in your case is going to be ceremonial, probably. No, I just want, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. I, 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 I will not I'll contribute this, actually. Yeah, yeah, okay, there you go. So you can yeah. contribute yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, that's but that's beautiful. An, that's Thank an ounce guys. of gold. And, it's worth $2,000 at this point. We think it's going to be worth $3,000 in a year because the guys in D.C. can't <laughs> seem to balance the budget. Thank and, you. Uh, and you so we, we ask for your ounce of gold. I'll, t- I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you my ounce of gold. For the kids that's watching, the entrepreneurs. It's usually for the entrepreneurs like yeah. that's, that's watching. Anybody. Yeah. yeah, anybody. So, you know, and I think we've all felt this and experienced it personally, but the best advice my dad ever gave me is, you know, he said, look, you know, life is going to be filled with peaks and valleys. It's inevitable. You know, the peaks will never last and, and the valleys won't, won't, won't either. But he said, when you're in those valleys and you're feeling down, the best thing you can do to pick yourself up is actually pick someone else up. And I found that in politics. I found that in business. I found that in my personal life, that when I'm struggling, and we all do sometimes, mm-hmm. and this is the joy of campaigning and the disconnect between what you see on TV and the misery of it and the, the attacks. and the, Chicken dinners. It's the beautiful part of campaigning is the most extraordinary people, the most courageous people telling the most remarkable stories, some of them beautiful and some of them heartbreaking. But when I sit and look in someone's eyes and give them just a tiny bit of hope, um, it's a remarkable, remarkable uh, pick-me-up. And I think this is the time for America to maybe think a little bit about that. If you really want to feel better about the future, you help one person. Just help one person with something. What a difference we can make. It doesn't take an act of God or an act of Congress or an act of the executive. It just takes an act of good character i'm a big believer in that as well it's almost two ounces of gold right there that's yeah thank you guys i really enjoyed it thank you very much appreciate it keep the faith yep thank you thank you